Welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. On this week's show, we're talking about the best of Christmas television with film critic Alonzo Duralde. Plus, we'll revisit the TV classic How the Grinch Stole Christmas, which celebrates its 50th anniversary this year. I'm here with New York Magazine TV critic Matt Zoller Seitz. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Kwanzaa, Gazelle. Happy holidays, Matt. Thank you. And Vulture TV columnist Jen Cheney is here with us as well. Hello, and happy Festivus for the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to hear your voice, Jen. Uh, thank you. <laughs> so, you know, we're going we're gonna to get to talking about all the great Christmas television shortly, but first, it's time for this week's prompt. Last week... It's prompt time. It's prompt time. Last week, we talked about our favorite mashup of genres in a TV series or episode. And this week, our producers ask us, 2016 is almost over. What has been your favorite TV moment of this year? Are we talking moment or episode? Moment or episode, I believe, mm. is allowed here. Yes. Okay. Well, I, I'll, I'll, I'll throw one of each. Uh, my, I think my favorite moment, like all together, is, I don't know if it counts as a moment, or maybe it's a sequence, is a sequence at the end of... Uh, the Magic of David Copperfield for The Statue of Liberty Disappears, which is one oh. of the longest titles of a great episode of TV ever, probably, but The Americans. The Americans. Yeah, and it's set to a song by Roxy Music Club, and it jumps the uh, story forward um, several months, and uh, it's just this beautifully constructed montage uh, directed by um, the star, uh, the co-star of the show, uh, Matthew Reese. Reese, yeah. That's and, right. And... Uh, uh, it great, uh, just a great, great piece. And I think my favorite, uh, my favorite single episode of the year would have to be the BoJack Horseman underwater episode. I think. I think I probably put something else as number one. Maybe it was the girlfriend experience finale. But now that I think about it, I think I have to go with BoJack underwater at that film festival, and it turns into a silent film. It's an amazing episode, Jen. What you got? Uh. Well, for episode, I mean, that underwater one is amazing, um, so I do agree with that. But uh, actually, my favorite pilot was the Better Things pilot because I just thought it was really note-perfect from beginning to end. And, and, you know, as a parent, I just related to a lot of it. It was Jesus, touching so and it was funny. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just that moment when she's in the store and she's like, where is the graph paper? And she's just screaming. Um, that's <laughs> like me every day. Um, so uh, so that was one that, that stuck out in my mind. Also, I think maybe the moment when I was watching the screeners of Stranger Things and the first time I saw those opening titles, because I think that's what, when you immediately go, okay, show, I see what you're doing here, and, I, and I'm here for it. <laughs> <laughs> for me, what has been most memorable are the moments that have made me cry. And I, I'll go with my moment first, which is also an American's moment, and it's the episode where Nina is shot at the end of the episode. And I just thought that that whole scene was done so well in a way where it was shocking yet expected in a, in a way where, Jen, as you pointed out in your piece, you know, this is a year of, of plot twists that you could see coming a mile away. And here was one where just completely blindsided me. And the tears just started streaming down my face because I didn't realize how much I cared about Nina yeah. until that moment. Mm -hmm. And I also felt like in a year when there's been so much death on TV that makes you feel nothing, it was nice to just have something where you really deeply felt for a character. Mm. Um, and then in terms of episode, I there have been so many great episodes, but if I had to pick one just, just off the top of my head, the one that 
I remember is because it also moved me emotionally, and that was the high-maintenance episode about the dog. I love that one. (laughs) I love that episode. Yeah, Yeah. another, you know, just also just a clever episode, which I just appreciated kind of being forced to just see things from a different perspective that just kind of delighted me. Um, that dog, that, that dog, dog gave, gave a gra- gave a great performance. <laughs> what did you compare him to? I compared him to Nick Nolte. Yeah. He is. He was like he was like Nick. I felt like I was watching Nick Nolte in like you know uh, Life Lessons, the Scorsese <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, short. <laughs> so so that's this week's prompt, listeners. If you would like to weigh in on this week's prompt, or if you would like to suggest a prompt for a future week. Please email us at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. Next up, we're talking Christmas TV with Alonzo Duralde. Today, we're going to talk about TV shows and episodes that make for good holiday watching. And we are very happy to have film critic Alonzo Duralde here with us today. He's the author of Have Yourself a Movie Little Christmas and the creator and co-host of the TV movie podcast Linoleum Knife. Alonzo, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, you know, Christmas TV isn't talked about the same way as film. It's not like an industry the way Christmas films are. But I'm wondering if anything kind of stands out to you all as quintessential Christmas television. And in this sense, we can be talking about either episodes of television that are kind of classic holiday episodes or shows that maybe feel feel good to watch during the holidays <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i i um there's I, I feel like a christmas episode is kind of a tradition now i think i think like we get to the point where um uh, even you, i notice the networks uh it seems like they're pretty deliberately scheduling if they have a block of four sitcoms and in two hours they'll all be christmas episodes on the same night mm-hmm. you know just for consistency's sake and and the drama is a christmas episode i think some of the dramas do their best work during Christmas episodes, I know the West Wing, which I'd be shocked if none of us mentioned, was was one of the kings of the uh, uh, the poignant, dramatic, wistful Christmas episode. <laughs> so it's a big. I think it's a big deal. I don't know what you all think. It's it's definitely become one lately. I, I recently did an interview with uh, Jim Colucci, who wrote the book Golden Girls Forever, and he talked about how a lot of writers' rooms sort of hate the Christmas episode, or at least they used to, because you had to sort of contrive this reason of why people who weren't related to each other were spending the holidays to each other with each other and not with their actual families. So, you know, mm-hmm. if it's the Golden Girls, they have to get held up by a gun-toting Santa <laughs> and then show up at the airport and all the, the flights are snowed out, you know, in Miami. <laughs> Uh, or, you know, why are the six friends still in their apartment for Christmas and not at home? You know, so there were a lot of uh, hoops that had to be jumped through. Uh, but you're right. Nowadays, it has become a, a more of a staple. And I think that um, in the way that you see uh, uh, networks really leaning into Halloween episodes because it gives them an excuse to have fun costumes and do, you know, crazy stuff. Uh, you know, Christmas allows for, you know, big splashy decor and also maybe a little more sentimentality than they might get away with the rest of the year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. It's funny. When I was thinking about Christmas episodes before we started this conversation, it's true that a lot of dramas have really great ones, but the ones that immediately came to my mind were were comedies. Uh, And to jump off of what Alonzo was just saying, I mean, when you have a family sitcom, there's an obvious built-in excuse as to why everybody would be together. But I think a lot of shows have been 
have found ways around that that felt very organic. Like one of my favorite uh, Christmas episodes is the Seinfeld episode, The Pick, the one where uh, Elaine's nipples are showing on the Christmas card, yes. which is <laughs> a <laughs> right. Christmas plot that I had never seen on television before. Um, or the Arrested Development episode, Afternoon Delight, where they're singing the karaoke song and it's horribly inappropriate. Um, so, you know, an office party is always a way to... to into a Christmas episode. So um, so I think they, they have been more and more creative as the years have gone by in terms of figuring out a way to do it that doesn't feel too gimmicky. <laughs> you know, I was just yeah, reminded the, that... The, the Office, in fact, had some really great Christmas party episodes. Yes. Presents are the best way to show someone how much you care. It is like this tangible thing that you can point to and say, hey man, I love you this many dollars worth. And I was just reminded that uh, a madman, in fact... Although you never think of them as Christmas episodes because it's not that kind of show, they did a number of really good Christmas episodes. I mean, they, they, they the Christmas party in in season four with uh, the conga line. Megan, can you give Mr. Connor a drink? Uh, where's Santa? And uh, and I think it's in season six where Don Draper is kind of hitting rock bottom, and he actually I think he like punches a Santa or something. Yeah, and then there's <laughs> one where he hooks up with his secretary, and then. Acts like it never happened. Well, and he gives her a Christmas yeah. card like with money day, in it, which is like she's yeah. like she's a prostitute right, or something. Right, right. Yeah. right. <laughs> Just leave it on the dresser, Don. Right, exactly. It's, yeah, it's a, definitely a miserable, miserable Christmas. I, w- I would almost go so far as to say that with comedies, because so many comedies are about families or makeshift families, I think they, the... Uh, um, sitcom Christmases tend to be about togetherness and community and dramas are all, or more often about loneliness. Yeah, you know, I, like they come to grips no. with it in a, in a in a way. I was trying to think of an episode of episodes of Gilmore Girls that were Christmassy because it feels like such an obvious yeah. show that would have Christmas episodes, but nothing memorable sticks out. Just because I think that whole show is like being in a Christmas card. That it that's does. true. Yeah, it, it, it's, all, it's all set in a snow globe. Right. <laughs> uh, as somebody as somebody who grew up in the seventies, I have a real fondness for. Uh, the old variety specials. And what I love now is that you have these channels like Get TV um, that are really kind of going through the vaults and finding these old, like, Mitzi Gaynor, you know, craft music hour episodes, you know, or uh, like the Cher Christmas special. Oh, my or, God, that was you know, amazing. Andy Williams or Perry Como. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I devour that stuff yeah. every December. <laughs> yeah, it is fantastic. It also, I mean, well, the the UK has a tradition of doing Christmas specials of TV shows, mm-hmm. um, right. but you know I've noticed this year Netflix has started doing it as well. BoJack Horseman had a holiday special, and Sense Eight is having a Christmas special yeah. episode. Which <laughs> oh, I can't wait! <laughs> I know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, they actually last year's Doctor Who Christmas special was a pretty great Christmas episode uh, with uh, Nick Frost as Santa Claus uh, and them having to break it to him that nobody likes the tangerines. <laughs> it, 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 arguably the role that Nick Frost was born to play. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love the West Wing episodes, um, in particular the one from, I guess it's probably season one with Toby. The one, you remember this one? Where he finds the uh, uh, where the dead homeless guy uh, he he finds out that this Korean war hero who died on the streets in a coat that that uh, Toby had given to Goodwill he he tries to get him a funeral at Arlington Cemetery. Yes, and, I remember uh, that. That's, that that was really I think almost a perfect episode, and I think The West Wing tried to top itself 
in subsequent seasons. And although the Christmas episodes were often quite good, I don't think they ever quite rose to that level. I mean, that that the moment where the president the president worries that getting this this uh, deceased homeless guy a burial in Arlington National Cemetery would create a precedent, and Toby says, "I would, I should, I should hope so." Mm. <laughs> uh, I, you know, South Park, which of course began its life as a Christmas card, uh, I think has done a pretty good job over the years. I mean, I don't know if they're doing one this year, but they have some pretty memorable, you know, Christmas episodes from the various appearances of Mr. Hanky the Christmas Pooh to <laughs> I their was hoping somebody would Christmas mention Mr. Carol Hankey. episode uh, to, of course, Woodland Critter Christmas. <laughs> Yeah, they did kind of a variety show, the one that was just all kind of different musical numbers um, one year as well. I, I wouldn't say it was a variety show per se, but it kind of in that spirit as much as South Park can get there. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. And in fact, the, and then they used the commercial bumpers from some bootleg of the Star Wars holiday special. And so they had some like news guy saying, fighting the frizzies at 11. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for mentioning the Star Wars Christmas special because that also needed to be raised. I believe it was a, a Happy Life Day, is what they said. Is it Happy Life yes, Day? Yes, it's Life Day. Happy <laughs> Life That's Day. That's right. I remember being really, really into that though, even though it was obviously like, like it cost like nine dollars, and they were recycling footage <laughs> from the movie and. It was that's really a psychedelic masterpiece of a kind that thing. It's one of those things like the Brady Bunch variety hour where like there's a window of time where that thing could exist, not before, not after, and you just look at it now and and you can only just stare agape at it. <laughs> I don't think we can get through this segment without talking about the Festivus episode of Seinfeld. Nothing, it's a card from my dad. What is it? I... <laughs> Dear son, happy Festivus? What is Festivus? It's nothing. It's nothing. When George was growing Jerry, up, no. his father no. hated all the commercial and religious aspects of Christmas, yeah. so he made up his own holiday. Oh, and another piece of the puzzle falls into place. All right. And instead of a tree, didn't your father put up an aluminum pole? Oh, Jerry, no. stop it. And then weren't there feats of strength that always ended up with you crying? I can't uh, I'm going to work. You happy now? What do you think made that episode so, you know, just endure so much i think because it tapped into the fact that a lot of people don't like christmas mm -hmm. they just don't like it they make them uncomfortable they dread it i mean you know i i kind of enjoy christmas in some ways but i got to admit I, I do feel a sense of trepidation when it approaches because it's so um it's so it, it's just so eventful like sort of oppressively eventful and there's so many obligations like social obligations and family obligations and you got presents to buy and all that stuff and I just kind of want it to be over like even when I'm enjoying it I kind of want it to be yeah. over I sound like a like a misanthropic horrible person saying this but I, yes, know. yes, you do, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the I, I think love the you, Festivus episode for that reason because it's just like you know, it's like the, the, they're inventing their own holiday, and it expresses a somewhat less uh, laudatory view of the of the entire enterprise. Yeah, if you if you ask somebody who doesn't like going home for Christmas what they don't like about it, and they made a list of it, those things would wind up being the the a lot of the sort of the festivist rituals. You know, the airing of the grievances is just you know, and and the the feats of strength is just you know, you just imagine like these sort of you know ongoing kind of family beefs that get aired every holiday season, <laughs> but now they're being codified. Right. Exactly. Exactly. 
And, and beyond just appealing to people who don't like Christmas, I think it also really tapped into people who don't celebrate Christmas, whether yeah. they're Jewish or, or agnostic or some other religion or just just not into it. They're not re- religious people. It tapped into this idea that, you know, we're disenfranchised, but, oh, we can we can have a Festivus poll now. There's something for us to do. Uh, so I think there was an element of that at work as well. That also kind of taps into the Chris Mocha episode of The O.C. So what's it going to be, huh? You want your menorah or a candy cane? Hmm? Christmas or Hanukkah? Uh, I'm not. Don't worry about it, buddy, because in this house, you don't have to choose. Allow me to introduce you to a little something that I like to call Chrismica. Chrismica? That's right. It's a new holiday, Ryan, and it's sweeping the nation. Hey, fellas, we got the tree. Hey. Or at least the living room. Guys, a little help. Just uh, save a spot for you right there. Put your muscle into it. Excellent. To the right a little. To the right, to the right. Don't hurt it. Those needles are brittle. That's perfect. You guys. You guys. A+. plus. A plus. I love, I love the holidays. I love them all. We didn't really know how to raise Seth. Yeah, so I raised myself. And in doing so, I created the greatest super holiday known to mankind, drawing on the best that Christianity and Judaism have to offer. And you call it Chrismica. Just hearing you say it makes me feel all festive. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's great. You know, another, another one uh, that I think people should, uh, I, I wish people would uh, uh, cite more often when they make lists of Christmas episodes is the uh, Futurama. With the uh, homicidal Terminator Santa, oh right, <laughs> who's basically just like uh, he's he's like a, the devil. He's like the devil. I mean, he's like he's like a warlord. He's like a robot warlord devil, Santa Claus on Futurama, <laughs> and everyone's scared of him. And Christmas in in the world of Futurama, Christmas is a bit like the it's a bit like the Purge. Like when it's like Christmas is arriving and people start like, you know, barring their doors and lowering the shutters on their windows and stocking up on ammunition and water <laughs> to, to, to wait out the I, I, long siege. I always thought that was sort of the next level of uh, that Simpsons episode with John Waters where he uh, frightens off the reindeer with the Japanese robot of annual gift man. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. We haven't even talked about The Simpsons. I mean, The Simpsons has great Christmas episodes. I mean, its first episode was a Christmas episode. And that's I remember oh, that's recording right. that when it was on. And I, I just watched it over and over again. And like, just with my, my mouth hanging open, like, wow, they're, they're allowed to say I'm Bart Simpson. Who the hell are you? And, you know, all this kind of stuff. Uh, but I really love the one with Gary Coleman. That's actually my favorite Simpsons Christmas episode. The one with Funzo, Funzo, Funzo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That is a great one. I also like, there was an episode of MASH from like, God, it was late. It was like season seven or eight where uh, Hawkeye, Honeycutt, and Houlihan are trying to keep this wounded soldier alive. Do you remember that one? No. Yeah, it's a, no, yeah, it's either. a great one. And and it's sort of, you know, it's, it's classic MASH because it's pairing up that plot line, which is a very serious, like, no laugh track, you know, we're an anti-war show. Uh, and then in the meanwhile, there's all these shenanigans happening with the other characters. And, you know, Mulcahy is organizing a party for local orphans and things like that. It's just a great kind of smorgasbord example of everything that MASH could do at the same time, which was a lot. I, I, I seem to recall them doing an episode that was, they, they wanted to, they're putting together something like Christmas. It was February or something, but it was just this awful winter and everybody's morale was in the dump. So they were coming up with all these sort of like secret Santas and a party and yes. all this stuff. Even though it had nothing, it wasn't Christmas time. They were going to just make one up just to make everybody feel better. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then there was there was a Mary Tyler Moore episode. Do you remember this one? It was a it was a the season one where she has to where she's stuck at the office. She's or? stuck at the office. She has to work uh, Christmas uh, Eve, and uh, I, I think somehow it's like one thing after another. Like she has to work. She gets talked into working Christmas Day, and then she's working uh, uh, Christmas night or Christmas Eve as well because somebody asked her to cover. And then it kind of becomes uh, like almost like a Halloween episode where she's uh, in the office by herself. And she's hearing noises, and she and she starts to be afraid for her life. <laughs> it's really great. It's really a great, like, it's kind of a tour de force uh, performance by Mary Tyler Moore. Like, they give her a little solo almost. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah, she, she has to carry it by herself. That episode's actually called Christmas and the Hard Luck Kid, and which is the same title that James L. Brooks and Alan Burns had given to an episode, a Christmas episode of That Girl, uh, where she also, I think, has to work on Christmas. <laughs> interesting. Oh, I didn't know that. I also, I mean, just thinking about things that I like to watch during the holidays, I feel like I I like watching things that are a little bit like everything's going wrong and everyone is stuck inside together for one reason or another. Yeah. Like the, fr- the Friends Blackout episode is one of my favorites where Chandler is stuck in a bank vestibule with Jill Goodacre. <laughs> oh, great. This is just... <laughs> oh my god, it's her. It's that Victoria's Secret model, something something good acre. Hi mom, it's Jill. She's right, it's Jill. <laughs> Jill Goodacre. Oh my god. I am trapped in an ATM vestibule with Jill Goodacre. Is it a vestibule? Maybe it's an atrium. Oh yeah, that is the part to focus on, you idiot. <laughs> Yeah, I'm fine. I'm just stuck at the bank. At an ATM vestibule. Jill says vestibule? I'm going with vestibule. I'm fine. No, I'm not alone. I don't know. Some guy. Oh, some guy. I am some guy. Hey, Jill, I saw you with some guy last night. Yes, he was some guy. And then there's a Broad City episode from two seasons ago where there's also a blackout. I think I just like blackouts. Yeah. And um, <laughs> there's there's poop in the in the apartment and everyone's Yes, to that's smell a great. It. That's great. It's so great. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It's, it's really like, really good. That feeling of everyone being stuck inside is really just such a Christmas feeling to me of not being able well, to get away. Well, I've been going back and looking at, Chris, you know, putting Christmas episodes in, in uh, TiVo, which I know just mentioning TiVo marks me as an old man. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the, you, uh, the two sort of tropes that keep coming up, especially in the 70s and 80s, it's either the Christmas Carol knockoff episode where a mean character, like, is visited by ghosts who are played by the co-stars and learns to love Christmas, or the no one is coming to my Christmas party slash, oh, no, everyone is coming to my Christmas party. Yes. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> in fact, that Mary Tyler Moore episode is almost an inversion of that, where she she really wants to just you know celebrate Christmas and uh, you know and and not be by herself. And of course, uh, you know, at the end of it, she gets to go to like the noises turn out to be her colleagues coming to get her and take her to a party. Aww. Yeah, aww, exactly. That's Christmas for you, aww. I'm amazed we've been talking this long and we haven't really talked about animated Christmas specials, which is sort of the, right. I don't know, mm. the backbone of holiday television. Um, You're yeah, a mean one, we will Mr. Be, Grinch. Right, we'll be talking more about yeah. the Grinch later on the show, but yeah, like, do you want to talk a little bit about kind of the quintessential 
animated specials? Well, I, you know, I'd say the, the, there's the holy trinity of Charlie Brown, Rudolph, and the Grinch, you know. <laughs> right, exactly. Those are, that's the, the trifecta. Um, but, you know, I remember that, and I don't think they do it anymore. There was a time when Cartoon Network would just program, like, all of Christmas Eve Day and show nothing but animated specials, and they would really dig deep and show these weird ones, and I would always get really excited when they would Pac-Man show, Christmas! Um, <laughs> oh, my God, I remember that. You've given me some horrible flashback now, Alonzo. Thank yeah, you. they would show this one, um, <laughs> Christmas Comes to Pac-Land, which was the Pac-Man Christmas special. Like, these just really weird ones, and I really enjoyed watching that. I don't think they do it anymore. Kind of who, was the, who was the Pac-Man Jesus? That's a question that they didn't answer. On that episode. I, I, this I was a strictly Santa uh, Christmas. The, they don't they don't delve too deeply into the uh, <laughs> into the mystical. <laughs> Uh, the the thing about the the the, the old Chris, those old cartoons, uh, I love that the major networks have realized now that thanks to the internet and nerddom in general, people will call them out if they try and cut stuff for time. So you yeah. will see, like Charlie Brown gets a full hour, well they'll just sort of pad out the rest of the hour with some newer Peanuts Christmas stuff, or you know the Grinch I think got like a thirty five or forty minute time slot on NBC just so they could run the whole thing and run the modern amount of commercials that go in a TV show. I'm going to call out Freeform because they do not do this and they just reran one of my personal favorites that I know is like at best second tier Rankin Bass, the 1974 animated special Twas the Night Before Christmas. Yeah. Um, and they they <laughs> yeah, just they showed it in a half hour time slot and they cut out an entire scene and I know which scene it is and uh, they need to knock that off. <laughs> they definitely need to knock that off. I think the Rankin-Bass specials might have faded a little bit in cultural currency, although I feel like the popularity of stop motion might reverse that eventually mm. for Lucky. But I well, love the I mean, look it's of a those. mixed bag. I mean, like, Rudolph is great. Frosty is great. But when you start getting into stuff like Nestor the Long-Eared Donkey or the Little Drummer Boy <laughs> or the Leprechaun's Christmas Gold, it's very much a matter of taste, I think. Do you remember Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas? I oh, do? God, yes. that is, like, suicidally depressing. What, what is that, Matt? <laughs> well, well, you know, I, I think Alonzo actually may describe it more colorfully <laughs> than I can, but it's a Jim Henson project, right? Yeah, it's yes. about, uh, it's it, it's set in, I guess, what's probably supposed to be the Depression, but it's a family of otters, and it gets kind of into this uh, Gift of the Magi situation where the you have the mother and the son, and they're each trying to win this local music competition to, like, better their situation and so I think to make instruments what Emmett has to like punch a hole in her wash tub even though she yes. makes a living doing people's laundry to play to turn it into a base and she has to do something with something that he uses for work and then they all lose anyway and it's just like oh god Jim Henson you're killing me here <laughs> but you know they have each other and it's Christmas and love and whatever you know <laughs> Does anybody remember the special Ziggy's Gift? It was the Ziggy Christmas special? As a matter of fact, I, I, I had uh, several years of therapy that may or may not have included very powerful psychotropic drugs to remove the memory of that. <laughs> really? <laughs> I, I know it exists. I've never seen it. Yes. I, this is a, I'll just admit this, and it's an embarrassing fact about myself. But I vividly remember watching that special, and I think at the end, like, Ziggy helps a homeless person or something. Yeah. I don't know. But there's some, like, act of kindness, and... I was like weeping. It was like the first time I watched something on TV and remember just like being inconsolably upset by what I had just witnessed. And wow. for some reason, it was Ziggy that did it to me. I, I don't know. Wow. <laughs> Ziggy. <laughs> there were there were some cartoons that definitely did that to me. There, there I, I can't remember which of the two it was, but there were these sort of like 
the kind of off-brand, like very Christian-y cartoons. There was one called Christmas Is and one called Easter Is. And yeah. it was like a kid and a sheepdog. And in one of them, like the sheepdog gets lost or something, and I lost it. You know, it was like <laughs> Snoopy Come Home all over again. And obviously there was a happy ending, but boy, that put me through the ringer, that one. Oh. Man, moral of the story, Christmas is a dark time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I totally cried at the end of The Gathering, which is still one of my favorite TV oh, movies ever made. That's where really good. Dying Ed Asner has to reunite his estranged family at Christmas time, including draft dodger Gregory Harrison, who's hiding out in Canada. It's amazing. <laughs> well, and we haven't even touched on all the various versions, of, like straight up versions of A Christmas Carol. You know, like TV movie, mm. like there was the American, an American Christmas Carol with Henry Winkler as an American Scrooge, which was quite interesting. Which is quite good. It is quite good. It's a really good movie, and it's on YouTube if anybody wants to seek it out. And then I think, in my opinion, my very favorite screen Scrooge of all time, and and you know I ranked it above even Alistair Sim is uh, George C. Scott in the CBS TV version of A Christmas Carol, where he's like no, a that's big, a great one. he's a big, you know, he's a big burly, booming voice Scrooge. Like, he's not the shriveled old, yeah, kind of Scrooge, like prune Scrooge. He's not like that. He's George C. Scott. He's, like, bigger than life. He's, like, this big, roaring, you know, magnificent Falstaff kind of Scrooge. Uh, and he's great. That's one of uh, George C. Scott's very best performances. Well, Matt, I... I think you owe Mr. Magoo an apology, man. <laughs> oh, yeah, Mr. Magoo. <laughs> Mr. Oh, Magoo's yes. performance was uh, amazing. Which is actually the first animated TV uh, Christmas special. Really? I yeah, Mr. Magoo's wow. Christmas Carol. I didn't know that. What year was yeah. that? Was it the 60s? Like 62, I think. It was a couple years before, like Charlie Brown and, and company. Huh. There have been a lot of interesting TV Scrooges. I mean, like Patrick Stewart did, he adapted his one-man show, where you know, but did it with a full cast. That's a pretty good one. There's a, there's a musical 50s version that's kind of that, uh, that hasn't been released on video a lot, but it probably lives on YouTube, called The Stingiest Man in Town with Basil that. Rathbone. That's a lot of fun. Yeah, hmm. yeah. It's an endless. There's an endless array of ways to to get into it. And then there's there's the whole there's the whole subgenre of ambitious career woman as Scrooge. Like uh, yeah. There's a Susan Lucci Scrooge. There's a Cicely Tyson, a Tori Spelling. Um, uh, you know, there's a it's, a it's a whole it's a whole. Oh, the Vanessa Williams, of course, a Diva's Christmas Carol. Oh my God! Yes. <laughs> and then you have all the Hallmark TV movies that are have all the same yeah. tropes: the family business and oh. Carol. Um, you can I'm, have a, I'm such a junkie for Hallmark. I don't know if anybody else is going to come out with me on this one, but uh, they've they've been showing those Christmas movies since before Halloween, and I just uh, there are times where I'll just I'll just put them on, and I'll come in the middle of one, and it doesn't matter because you, know you know where exactly, it's been yeah. and where it's going, and uh, and yeah, that's yeah. that's just been my crack this holiday season. <laughs> that's, that's all you need. <laughs> I think uh, I think that's about all the time we have. But Alonzo, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for this having great. me. Great. Have yourself a movie, Little Christmas, Alonzo. <laughs> and all of you. <laughs> and buy Alonzo's book. It's legitimately excellent. Oh, thank you, Matt. December 18th, 2016, was the 50th anniversary of the first airing of 
How the Grinch Stole Christmas on CBS. And to com- to commemorate, we're going to talk today about the classic TV special and also about TV animation from that era in general, because this was during a time where a lot of TV animated classics aired, most famously A Charlie Brown Christmas and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And we're joined today by Kevin Sandler, associate professor at Arizona State University and author of Reading the Rabbit, Explorations in Warner Brothers Animation. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. So can you start by just, you know, telling us a little bit about the hallmarks of animation at this time? Is there anything particularly distinctive that that sticks out to you? Well, what's distinctive is that you have Chuck Jones, who was a extremely famous director at Warner Brothers, uh, who had gotten laid off by Warner Brothers four years earlier because there no longer was a market for seven-minute cartoons to play in front of uh, movies. And so a lot of those animators and directors, not just from Warner Brothers, but from MGM and, and Disney and Columbia and so on, they all moved to television. However, the change was is that you now went from fully animated cartoons in which you had lots of movement and, uh, and, and character idiosyncrasies that cost maybe 35000 to 40000 for a six-minute cartoon, that now you are making cartoons for, let's say, $20,000 for a half an hour. So pretty much the cost of making a cartoon just plummeted by almost 70%. And you had to now have animators find shortcuts in order to create movement. And Chuck was one of those artists who, for the most part, refused to move to television, unlike, let's say, Fritz Freeling, who did Pink Panther, or Hannah and Barbera, who went from doing Tom and Jerry cartoons that cost, say, $35,000 for six minutes, to making Rough and Ready, or Huckleberry Hound, or Yogi Bear, that cost pretty much $20,000 for a half an hour instead of six minutes. So, so they had to, essentially, they had to do less with more, as the saying goes. Or more with less, rather, sorry. Yeah, you had to do more with less and find a way to create the illusion of movement uh, in animation while having much less money to do it. So Hanna-Barbera are pretty much credited with, though other people had done, to try to find ways to streamline the animation process in which you would have to do a cartoon maybe in three to four, uh, maybe in three to four weeks when you almost had six to nine months prior to that to be making a cartoon that, that lasted uh, a third as long. And so you would find ways of doing it, just have a talking head that is familiar with, and in Yogi Bear, Huckleberry Hound, you have the backgrounds just repeating themselves, like the Flintstones driving (laughs) by the same house over and over again. (laughs) Right. Similar character designs among all the characters. You know, a Bugs Bunny does not look like a Daffy Duck, does not look like a Porky Pig, but you can tell similarities between the Wilmas and the and the Freds, and the Bettys, and the Mr. Slates, and so on. So trying to find ways of doing this. And Chuck Jones, he really refused to kind of move over to television to be making the kind of stuff that Hanna-Barbera was doing. He was very adamant uh, in making sure people knew that. I am not going to sell myself out. I'm not going to sell my art, my artistic uh, you know, sense out for television 
uh, and I am either going to not work or work on television specials or, or other things. So that's kind of the mindset that he was in uh, in around the early 60s. But pretty much MGM brought him back uh, in 1964 to actually design Tom and Jerry cartoons that Hanna-Barbera once did. And I remember those ones from the, the 60s. Those were the ones that Chuck Jones did in the 60s were... Uh, really a, a kind of off-puttingly modernist, you know? I mean, like, compared to what Tom and Jerry was before, and, and I feel like Chuck Jones always had that sort of uh, an influence in his work, and I wonder if maybe, despite having been given fewer resources, one of the reasons why he wasn't able to make such a great special as, as uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas is because he was a little bit of a um, a minimalist compared to other animators. Like, I, I, when I think of Chuck Jones, I think of those poker faces, I think of, you know, mo- movements that are extremely precise. Like, there's not, like, a bunch of action happening simultaneously in a frame. It's, like, stillness and then a little bit of motion, and that's what makes it funny. Yeah, true. He was, uh, the you know, kind of a master of a little bit of the freeze frame or the subtle take. But that subtlety still took. Before we talk more about his, his animation style, can you, can you speak to what his relationship was with Dr. Seuss? Because I believe they had worked together before the Grinch in some capacity, like on animated shorts, maybe during the World War II era. Is that right? That is correct. Uh, he had met uh, Dr. Uh, Seuss, who was uh, in charge of uh, the first animation unit uh, for animation and documentaries during World War II. And so together with Seuss, they wrote a series of cartoons known as uh, the Private Snafu Cartoons, in which pretty much they were cartoons for the, uh, for the soldiers in which showed this kind of bumbling, stupid, idiotic you know, type of, of uh, private uh, and show what is it that you should not do as a soldier. So pretty much they were training films in which Dr. Seuss had collaborated with Chuck Jones uh, whose uh, whose unit at Warner Brothers animated and finished all those cartoons, and so and so they had that relationship in the early to uh, to mid forties. But Dr. Seuss had been kind of uh, screwed by a lot of other animation companies after that, not given due credit, not given a lot of money uh, for loaning out his stories. So there's a Horton Here's a Who um, short. Right. He didn't get the proper credit for something like the famous UPA cartoon, uh, Gerald McBoing Boing. So, right. Oh, right. right. But I think that uh, that relationship that he had beforehand and I think that the drawings that Chuck Jones had shown um, Dr. Seuss gave him faith in order to be able to uh, translate the, uh, the Grinch to uh, the small screen. What was their collaboration like? So, for example, was Chuck Jones doing all, all of the animations for the TV special? Was there, uh, do you have a sense of what that dynamic was like in terms of figuring out how to translate it from the book to the screen? I, in the book, I believe the Grinch was in black and white, for example, and he's in green in the in the TV special. <laughs> yeah, it's a rich, it's a richly full colored uh, piece of work. The TV special. Yeah, um, from what I uh, know from uh, from how Chuck has described it, is that you know Chuck was was in a tour. He wanted complete control over the work, and and so once he got the go ahead, pretty much he was given somewhat carte blanche to kind of re create the Grinch book in uh, animated form. And, and Chuck always says that I wanted to, you know, I'm not trying to add things to it. I'm trying to just extend the original idea out 
And so for him, he wanted to preserve, you know, everything about the Grinch. But in a way, he had to make some kind of change, particularly since he had Karloff, uh, you know, read, uh, read the book. And it ended up in 12 minutes. He had to do 24 minutes of animation. And so a lot of what Chuck had done not only was certainly add the color, add the animation, try to flesh out how do these characters move, how do they speak, you know, from Cindy Lee Who to... Uh, to <laughs> who was no more than two. <laughs> yeah, no more than two. Uh, but he, he fleshed out pretty much the character of Max. That's a great relationship between the two of them. And I was also going to say they, they, there's actually some kind of like action scenes in there, like the whole, the whole business where uh, that, that wonderful montage where he's uh, stealing all the presents and loading them into the back of his sleigh. And then, and then there's this whole segment. It's like, an, it's like suddenly becomes a Werner Herzog film where they're going up to the, the top of Mount Crumpet to dump all the presents. Yeah, I mean, it's a wonderful action scene uh, that, you know, certainly he, you know, kind of that was came from, from Chuck and, and something that he had been accustomed to doing at Warner Brothers when he was there. But such things, though, you know, wouldn't have been possible if he didn't have the money pretty much to be able to do a variety of different scenes in action that could be fully animated, you know, to kind of capture those events happening. He also took some shortcuts, so on. So in some of those action scenes that you see, or even big, uh, big scenes involving a lot of characters, there is kind of what we, there's lots of looping that's happening in which like, you know, the, like when you see those, the toys that he's stealing from the homes and you see the bags flying out of the chimneys, it's the same shot, you know, mm-hmm. again and again and again. But for the most part, uh, you know, he's able to accomplish that with a, uh, with a budget to be able to meet the demand of a lot of action movement. And how much did the Grinch cost? You mentioned he, you know, this was a, during a time when a lot of animation wasn't getting a big budget. The reports are that it cost uh, $300,000. Oh, so like 10 times more than they normally would have paid for something like yeah, that. Yeah, pretty much 10 times more than any other half hour at the time, though the Flintstones was the most expensive, pretty much because they had to pay a lot for writers and the voice actors. Mm. Flintstones cost 65000 for a half hour. Charlie Brown mm. cost $76,000 for its half hour a year earlier. And so $300,000 was a lot and reported at the time the most expensive half hour or maybe animated show that CBS had done in a long time. But, I mean, they got that money because they had um, sponsors. Mm. Uh, Charlie Brown was sponsored by Coca-Cola and The Grinch uh, That Stole Christmas was sponsored by, strangely, some company I never heard of, but it was the foundation of corporate banks, corp foundation of service banks, something like that. <laughs> sounds like a sounds like the, uh, the 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 umbrella organization for the bad guy in, an, in like a post-apocalyptic action film, you know. <laughs> it's like like really? <laughs> and kind of funny for a show that's anti-commercialism, you know. Right. <laughs> right, and and Chuck always used to say there's that line in the, in the cartoon in which uh, he says it's Christmas is not about going to a store or something like yeah. that. Yeah, I yeah. Maybe is. Christmas he thought doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas uh, the Grinch thought means a little bit more or something along those lines. And you and you would think that maybe uh, the the banks, if they were going to sponsor, perhaps would want that line changed. <laughs> <laughs> hey, do you do you know anything about the songs? I mean, like, what at what point did the song? I love the songs in the Grinch. And at what point did they come in? And why didn't Boris Karloff sing the songs? When you asked about Dr. Seuss, Ted Geisel's work w- within the the TV show itself, he did write all the lyrics to the songs. Oh. 
I didn't know uh, that. That's great. Uh, the songs were uh, sung by uh, Thurl Ravenscroft, who was very well known at the time, you know, particularly for his, his deep voice. He was Tony and the Tiger, wasn't he? He was Tony the Tiger. And he also, uh, which I, I never knew but uh, discovered, was he's also the voice in the Snoopy cartoons when Snoopy's trying to get into a place where there's only humans and you hear the no dogs allowed. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's, also that's the wow, same. That's him. That. That's great. I love that. I mean, like, I'm like, wow, that, that's, that's <laughs> So his voice is, is known probably by a lot of people, but not the name uh, certainly doesn't associate with. Um, I'm not sure if Boris Karloff could sing, or perhaps Chuck was, you know, he knew, he knew that Boris was the person he wanted to, to be the narrator. But he probably had in his mind and, and that he wanted somebody, you know, this with this deep, was it uh, bass, acetone, I'm, I'm not sure, uh, you know, voice to kind of do these songs. And, and I'm sure that that's just not mm-hmm. something that uh, Boris Karloff, you know, could do or would do. I read that um, Ted Geisel had mentioned that Chuck Jones had drawn the Grinch to kind of look like him, and he and Chuck Jones acknowledged that he kind of sneaks his face into things that he draws. Mm-hmm. Is that something that's one of his trademarks? Um, I think with some with his uh, his grumpy characters, and I and and certainly the Grinch does look like Chuck a lot. I mean, Chuck was not known to be the most friendliest, uh, not known to be the kind of gl- most gleeful. Uh, animator, though the one of the most talented ones uh, of the studio era and uh, and the early television era. But when you when you put his face next to uh, the Grinches, it's unmistakable. I mean, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean they both got these kind of uh, rounded chins and, and chubby cheeks and uh, I think eyelashes. And, and also the smile, the the smile, the smiles of the two are very distinctive. Like, and they really can't, there's some moments where the moments where the Grinch smiles genuinely or 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 sort of like uh with malice it's like the curtains are opening on a on like before a a play like that's how that's how gradual it is it's like there's like wires that are drawing the 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 you know the sides of the mouth up to to produce the smile it's like it's like he has to make himself smile (laughs) yeah i mean that was chuck's in a way great ability was using you know just a subtle type of take here, a subtle design here, you know, to achieve kind of character within that scene uh, or, or any kind of scene. It was just quite impressive, certainly his ability to do something like that. I, I wanted to ask, we talked before about Boris Karloff and, and uh, yeah. some of the voice work in this. Uh, and certainly one of my favorite voices in it is, is June Foray as Cindy Lou Who. Why are you taking our Christmas tree? Why? You know, <laughs> Santa and, Claus. And once, <laughs> and once you know that she's also the voice of Rocky from Rocky and Bullwinkle, you can't not hear that uh, a little bit when when she does Cindy Lou Who. But was there to to what extent did Chuck Jones really want her to do it, or did it just kind of fall into place um, through other means? Well, June Foray was pretty much the go-to person, you know, for mm-hmm. any type of female character or somewhat asexual uh, animal character or something. So, I mean, he, she, June Foray was the voice of Granny in the Warner Brothers cartoons. They had a, the voice of the witch in a lot of the Warner Brothers cartoons and a voice in other studios as well. And so, I mean, he got top talent and probably could pay top talent for this cartoon, and he got that across the board, uh, whether it's Ravenscroft or Karloff and Foray. I mean, these were the people who were at, you know, the kind of 
the top of the list. And, you know, and, and June Foray just could pretty much, you know, do anything. Uh, and the fact that she could go from that kind of little voice to this, to a granny voice, to doing Rocky, to also doing Natasha on Rocky mm. and Bullwinkle. <laughs> I mean, just her range was, was, was impressive, just yeah. absolutely impressive. She was just as good as Mel Blanc. Yeah. So Chuck Jones also directed the How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And I'm curious, you know, what is it what does it mean to direct? How does one direct an animated film? Good question. The, the way that someone directs uh, an animated film is pretty much that they are, you know, like any director in charge of the variety of jobs that go into doing it. But specifically, he's the one that does and he did many of them for this, does all the key drawings, the main drawings that are going to show the characters in action, how they're going to respond to certain situations. And, and traditionally, they would, they're the ones that design what's known as like a model sheet. So if you ever see a model sheet of like Bugs Bunny in like 20 different poses, it just shows how Bugs Bunny looks in profile, looks from behind, looks out front, and responds to a variety of action. So the assistants can then redraw each cell similar to what this director has envisioned for the character. He's probably there also to monitor all the editing, monitor all the voice acting, to guide uh, those designers um, for backgrounds, like the famous uh, background designer Maurice Noble worked on this on this particular show, and he's the one that's responsible for a lot of the futuristic designs in, or fantasy designs in a lot of Warner Brothers cartoons, such as What's Opera Doc and Duck Dodgers <laughs> in the 24th Which we were century. just discussing, yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so he's got his team of some key people who he's overseeing, who's just like any director, responsible uh, to help him achieve his visions in all of these various departments. Now that you list all of the different people who are associated with this thing, it really is astounding. I mean, I hadn't, I hadn't really considered it in that way, that like for uh, every department, he got the probably the very best person that he could have gotten. For every, well, he every got key his position. team that he had, uh, several of the people who he had worked on, uh, worked with in, at, at Warner Brothers, and I believe who was currently working uh, or had been working with him on the Tom and Jerry cartoons. I still think, yeah, he's still, I believe he's still doing the Tom and Jerry cartoons at this time. Uh, so he's just using, you know, these people who have been trained at full animation, who have lots of experience to know how to tell tales. Mm. You know, I'm wondering, given the amount of money that was spent, uh, as you said earlier, was the expectation that this was going to be a special that they would show every year over and over again? I mean, it seems like it would have been hard to foresee just how enduring this special was going to be. That's true, and that's, that's interesting. Uh, I mean, certainly you had a lot of studios and a lot of networks wanting to get into holiday specials using animation. And certainly a Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer versus a Dr. Seuss special, whether it's by uh, Chuck Jones or later by Frizz Freeling, versus a Charlie Brown special. They're all more expensive than your traditional half hour. They're all unique looking in their own sense. But the fact was is that they became, they became big money makers, that a lot 
I think was it 38 million people is reported had watched The Grinch that uh, that stole Christmas. I don't know if people thought they were going to be a big uh, hit, and I think a lot of people were pleasantly surprised. But by the time that The Grinch came out in 66, the fact that people were totally surprised that the Charlie Brown Christmas was a hit a year earlier, I think gave, by that time, people's like, wow, this is, this is not really a risk. There is an audience for here who is looking for holiday specials, and we think that if we do this right, then we can replay it over and over and over again. And certainly, I was born in 69, and The Grinch and Rudolph and as well as Charlie Brown, were specials that we watched over and over every year, every year, every right. year. So they were part of my uh, growing up. Do you have, as a viewer, any particular uh, lines, moments, or images that uh, you still think about or that make you laugh? When watching it again, the one image that I always remembered, and but didn't know that I remember, but always stuck out, was the moment in which Max got the reindeer antlers on his head. <laughs> and they, weighed, uh, they, they weighed so much that he then fell to the ground and the Grinch had to saw off some of the antlers. <laughs> that, to me, somehow stuck in my brain uh, over these years as something that was quite funny because a lot of things I didn't really remember, but that particular moment uh, stuck out. Kevin, I saw you also study censor- censorship in film, and I'm right. curious, if, does this cross over with your work in animation at all and kind of the types of things that may have been censored in TV animation at this time? Most certainly. Um, I'm currently working a bo- on a book on the history of Scooby-Doo. Oh, uh, oh wow. So, <laughs> <laughs> and that's really covering pretty much the 50 years of TV history that comes shortly after the emergence of all these wonderful uh, primetime animation uh, specials such as The Grinch. And, reg- and the regulation of children's television is, is certainly that something that's always going to come into play, whether on broadcast or even toward cable. And so even though my, uh, I wrote a book on the rating system called uh, Why Hollywood Doesn't Make uh, X-Rated Movies, which is a little bit different since we're talking about the cinema, the fact of, you know, what, who are the people involved in getting something to air or getting something to the theater? Who are these people? Why are they doing it? What do they stand to gain? What do they stand to lose? And ultimately, how does that take the form of a television show or movie is, is certainly quite interesting. I, I haven't been able to prove it, but one of the things from The Grinch That Stole Christmas that was supposedly edited out of later broadcasts was the scene in which when the Grinch comes in, sees all the little who's sleeping in bed, and he has this kind of creepy grin. That might imply some type of child uh, abduction or something of a creepy predatory nature. And that reportedly had been edited out of Mm. subsequent viewings, but then put back in. uh, So, uh, you know, yeah, uh, there is that link, you know, between both my animation work and the censorship work. That's fascinating. And, you know, lastly, I, I just wanted to ask, I saw there's there's going to be a 2018 uh, computer animated film version of How the Grinch Stole Christmas starring Benedict Cumberbatch as the Grinch. Uh, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on this, <laughs> just seeing it remade again. It's just the way things are going in, yeah. the, film and, in the film world and the television world that the costs of production and of marketing 
have gotten to be so expensive that you need to not only do a sh- before it used to be the sure thing was just do a sequel. Now it is let's just do the a property that we've already just done maybe five or six years ago or ten years ago and then redo it again. I just saw the new Spider-Man um, trailer and so <laughs> yeah. like how many times can you do tr- do Spider-Man? How many times can one do the Grinch? And so it's just a uh, some kind of of way to guarantee to investors that you may make money out of this as opposed to a, an idea that people aren't aware of. Mm-hmm. And so I approach it with, uh, with trepidation as I would, you know, toward any, um, you know, property that has been recently done or recently been sequelized or something like that. But it's got Benedict Cumberbatch, so, you know, he's got a good track record. Yeah. Maybe art, you think, doesn't come from a store? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe art, perhaps. You've got you to go to, uh, you gotta go to cable television uh, for, for art these days. Ooh, that's what we like to hear on show. <laughs> the thing show. The thing that's strange to me about doing The Grinch like that, and, and also the, the previous one that Ron Howard did, is like you said before, this was a story that it takes 11 or 12 minutes to read. And so even just doing it as you know a 25-minute, half-hour, whatever it clocks in at special in the 60s, was was beefing it up a little bit. And so to then make it into a feature-length movie, I don't know, it just feels like you're really stretching it pretty thin, unless they come up with something really magnificent this, this second time. But I wasn't a fan of the uh, Jim Carrey one. No, not many people were fans of that. And <laughs> it was horrible. It was horrible. <laughs> it's one thing to stretch out something in 12 minutes for another 12 minutes. It's another thing right. to stretch out a 12-minute story to... 100 minutes and and then some and so that would be up to hopefully uh the writer and director to come up with a really good story but you know what that's hard to do you know it's not something simple and uh i'm not sure if uh if they were able to if they're able to come up with that or, or not as we've seen in the past uh pe- things go into production without ever a script uh ready and then you get something like Fantastic Four or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh, happy uh, happy holidays to you, and uh, uh, when you uh, carve the roast beast, I hope you'll think of us. <laughs> I, sh- I certainly will. Thank you so much, Kevin. Uh, thank you. That's just about it for this week's show, but before we go, it's time for this week's ARIA. The ARIA is a space for one of us to take a few minutes to talk to you all directly about something going on in TV right now that we feel passionately about. Matt's going to give us this week's installment of the Aria. Matt, take it away. I think there must be something wrong with me, Linus. Christmas is coming, but I'm not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. I just don't understand Christmas, I guess. I like getting presents and sending Christmas cards and decorating trees and all that, but I'm still not happy. I always end up feeling depressed. Charlie Brown isn't alone. We've all felt melancholy during the holidays, and we've all been reluctant to say so because that means pondering what the season is all about. That's a tough job for a philosopher or a theologian, let alone a sweet little round-headed kid. And yet, Charlie Brown makes a stab at it anyway and comes up with surprisingly good answers. And every year, viewers want to hear those answers again. 
But why is this exactly? After all, television today favors fast, frequent, exaggerated bursts of action and confrontation. In comparison, A Charlie Brown Christmas is almost unervingly reflective. It's dependent on words, emotions, and small grace notes rather than speed, glitz, and noise. It's also a very personal work of art, something in short supply these days on TV and really every other medium. A Charlie Brown Christmas identifies the forces that clash in many viewers' hearts every holiday season. Secular happiness and religious faith, consumerism and charity, individual desires and community needs. And it has the temerity to suggest how we ought to think about these things. The plot is simple. Charlie Brown struggles to bring a church pageant to life, teach the materialistic Snoopy that winning isn't everything, and to convince his shallow neighborhood pals that having a scraggly tree doesn't reflect poorly on them as a group. I never thought it was such a bad little tree. It's not bad at all, really. Maybe it just needs a little love. The key moment in the special comes when Linus, the blanket-toting conscience of Charlie Brown's gang, mounts the stage at the church to deliver a passage from the Gospel of St. Luke, reminding everyone in the audience and in the viewing public that Christmas is not about decorations and gifts, but mercy and love and the spirit of giving. Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. A Charlie Brown Christmas is both timeless and of its time. Two years after JFK's assassination, the nation's mood hovered between fear and optimism. It was the era of the Civil Rights Initiative and Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. The idea of a nation caring for its less fortunate members had not yet been tainted by decades of bureaucratic mismanagement and political soapboxing, and the rejection of American consumerism had not yet become a pop culture cliché. My own dog gone commercial. I can't stand it. The program unfolds with the dreaminess of winter's first snow. In scene after scene, Charles Schultz's sketchily drawn characters move, trudge really, across a sparse landscape of icy suburban houses, streets, and lawns. Vince Guaraldi's lovely score, a music box quilting of major and minor chords backed by the softest whisper of brushes on drums, is as comforting as the warmth of one mittened hand in another. From time to time, Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, Sally, and company pause to catch snowflakes on their tongues or dance to the music of Schroeder on piano, Snoopy on guitar, and Pigpen on upright bass. 
And yet an aura of disquiet surrounds their merriment. What we're seeing in stylized, exaggerated form are children in training to be adults. Linus already embraces the holiday's ancient, non-secular spirit. Charlie Brown knows that he should, but can't find the right words to say so. Everyone else has to be cajoled, convinced, instructed. All I want is what I have coming to me. All I want is my fair share. The show's creators, Schultz, animator Bill Melendez, and producer Lee Mendelson, were willing to assume the role of teachers using humor, music, sentimentality, and scripture to bring skeptics to their message of social responsibility. In December of 1965, six years before the premiere of All in the Family and a flood of controversial TV movies made it okay to mix social, political, and religious opinions with entertainment, this was a touchy proposition. Today, it still is. Network restrictions on violence, language, and sex have loosened dramatically since Charles Schultz's heyday on CBS, allowing the fictional inhabitants of TV land to spout off about pretty much any issue, as long as their opinions aren't too far removed from the political center and are balanced by a token opposing voice. But to hear the Bible quoted at length, especially in a cartoon aimed primarily at children, is still quite rare. And to hear its teachings coupled with the liberal progressive social message is unthinkable. And yet, Schultz deliberately chose to have Linus deliver the passage, explicitly linking it with the moral health of the Peanuts community. Following Linus's firm admonition, the neighborhood kids gather around the anemic tree that they once despised, showering it with love. Instantly, it becomes healthy and bright. In one of American pop culture's most indelible images, the children launch into a rousing chorus of Hark the Herald Angels Sing, their mouths shaping into simultaneous oohs. I interviewed Charles Schultz for the Star-Ledger in 1995 on the 30th anniversary of the broadcast of the Charlie Brown Christmas special. He told me the following, I guess the message is that our own emotions and our own needs are not the most important thing in life. That's not a very popular view right now, which is too bad. Yet we still have an obligation toward everyone around us. We weren't just put on this earth to take and keep taking. We have to give. This is not necessarily a soothing idea in our culture, especially not when articulated in a network TV special crammed with commercials, but with Charlie Brown as our surrogate, the notion becomes less daunting. He's America's most beloved loser, forever falling short of his goals, endlessly stung by failure, and yet he keeps striving in his own mopey, blockheaded way to become a better person and to make the rest of us better too. In the process, he gives his friends, his dog, himself, and us an invaluable Christmas gift, the gift of introspection. As we watch the Peanuts gang singing songs around a little tree that nobody wanted, we realize that unless we're willing to look inward, to recognize our own selfishness and conquer it, we will remain incapable of bringing lasting happiness to others boxed inside our own preconceptions like beautiful unwrapped presents. 
That's it for this week's show. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman and Jordan Bell. Laura Mayer is our director of production, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mami, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Matt Zoller Seitz, and you can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller Seitz. And I'm Jen Cheney, and you can find me on Twitter at Cheney J. Thanks for listening.